Well, Grace Church, it is a tremendous pleasure to be back, and what a great way to start to sing those songs, to hear sweet sister Josie's testimony, and also uh, I was there at Carmen's baptism, and she was not interested in being sprinkled, just dipped me in the water and wanting to profess her love for Christ, and Josie and I have had a lot of conversations, even about my own dad, who's not a believer. She's prayed for me, prayed for him, and so what a treasure this church is. And this church is a treasure because of the people here. And it's not just the people, it's the people's Savior. And so I am excited to be able to open the Word of God with you this evening. Why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. And as you're turning to John chapter 6, I just want to remind you that uh, none of us are born Christians. So we heard uh, Josie's testimony. For me, it wasn't until the age of 20 when, as she described, the blinders came off. And I was able for the very first time to see Jesus in all of his beauty and majesty. And it was through the word of God. And so I love the word of God. And I am honored and privileged and humbled to be able to open it with you this evening. You say, well, Dom, what, uh, what is it that changed for you when you were 20 years old? I think it just goes down to this. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I didn't believe it before. I wasn't attracted to Christ. I didn't open up my Bible. I didn't go to church. The thing that gripped me was the power of the resurrection. As Jesus revealed himself in his word to me, and I was done for. But you know, the interesting thing, when we think about the resurrection being the greatest event in human history, the greatest miracle, providing the greatest salvation, providing the greatest assurance. I mean, it really is the greatest news in all the universe. Not everyone thinks that. Not everyone believes that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, there was a Frontline series on PBS called From Jesus to Christ, and this is what it advertised, an intellectual and visual guide which challenges familiar assumptions about the life of Jesus. And that's just shorthand for saying we don't believe what that book says. We don't trust what the book says. Here's what one of the quote-unquote experts said. And just to kind of talk up his credentials, he's the professor of Judaic studies and a professor of religious studies at Brown University. This is what he says. My own approach is to say that while we cannot possibly know the historicity of any single incident related in the Gospels, we can't possibly know the authenticity of any single saying attributed to Jesus. We can't possibly identify the truth of any given verse in the Gospels. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, there are certain large patterns that do emerge, and those patterns seem likely to be true. He goes on to say that the core of the Gospels is Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus, as a man who made a deep impression upon those whom he came in contact with, his ability to attract large crowds, his ability to attract a dedicated core group of followers or disciples, a larger group who saw him as somebody special. He says this man clearly made a mark. This man clearly made an impression. It was somebody you just don't forget Somebody who had power 
in a social sense. Someone who was able to somehow attract, enchant, and hold a large group of followers. He was a holy man. He was a miracle man, a free-spirited individual. And in the final analysis, he says, that's ultimately what did him in. So my question to Mr. Scholar and my question to you this evening is, is that all Jesus is? A miracle man? A guy who was able to attract people? Was he a socialite? Or was he more than that? You see, the claim is that he was a free-spirited man, but we can't really rely on what the Bible says. So there are some things that we can trust, but other things we can't. Well, what about his claims that he is God? Can we believe that? What about his claims that he has the power to raise himself from the dead? Can we believe that? What about his claims that he could raise up others from the dead? Can we believe that? Well, this is why we go to God's word to find those answers. And that's what, exactly what we're doing in John chapter 6. Here's our main idea for the evening. In John chapter 6, Jesus reveals his true identity. And he promises to raise up all of those who hunger and thirst for him. I'll say it again. In John 6, Jesus reveals his true identity and promises to raise up all those who hunger and thirst for him. And listen, I'll just say this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, when we're long and gone, people will come up like Josie just did and give testimony of the saving power of Christ because he did, in fact, raise from the dead our sermon is going to answer three questions, just real simply for you, and it's one of the ones that Josie asked, who is Jesus? We'll start there. Who is Jesus? The second question we're going to ask is, how, did we, how do we come to know Jesus? And then the third question is, why should we come to know Jesus? Who is he? How do we come to know him? And why should we come to know him? Now, let me just set the stage because we're transporting ourselves here in John's gospel in John chapter 6. And when you parachute, you need a little bit of context. First, let me say this. John's gospel is extremely unique. And one of the things that sticks out about John's gospel compared to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that there's a lot of discourses. We have a lot of Jesus' teaching in John's gospel. Many of the teachings and miracles are recorded in multitudes of the gospels. But the interesting thing about John is that he records two miracles that are found in all four Gospels. And those two miracles are the feeding of the 5,000, which we'll look at tonight, and the resurrection from the dead. And what we learn as we read through the life of Christ and the synoptics is that the miraculous feeding serves as a turning point in Jesus' ministry. So up to this point, Jesus is very public, he's out and about, he's teaching, people are drawn to him, he's very public. But here, there's a change in direction and focus, because Jesus' public ministry turns more into a private ministry. Jesus has just heard news that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been violently murdered. He had his head chopped off by Herod Antipas. And when he learned of this news, he withdraws and he focuses his ministry on his disciples. He retreats up to the mountainside to be alone with his men, but that doesn't stop the crowds from following after Jesus. And so look there in the text, starting in verse one, we read this. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side, to the Sea of Galilee. Now a large crowd was following him 
because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on all of those who were sick. Now, the interesting thing about the timing of this miracle and Christ's teaching is that it's during the Passover. You say, Dom, why is the Passover important? Because basically the whole world is traveling to Jerusalem for this very celebration. And the thoughts of the people would have been on things such as slavery and redemption, the exodus in Egypt. They would have been thinking about unleavened bread, lambs being sacrificed, blood being spilled. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus, when he goes into the discourse of the bread of life, that the Passover is the backdrop of this conversation. You see, he would want the people's minds to hearken back to the exodus in Egypt and the wilderness wanderings and to God's salvation and to his gracious provision. And so this, this is setting up, this is like sirens sounding off as we get the context, context here in John chapter 6. And now with some of that background, let's look at the narrative. Put your eyes on verse 5. It says, therefore Jesus, lifting his eyes and seeing that the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? Multitudes are gathered. We, we learn, of course, that there's 5,000 men. But Matthew says that's not including women and children. So we're talking 15, 20, maybe 25,000 people that are here on the hillside. I mean, this is a gigantic church service, but they're all tired. They're in the Kingsburg heat. We drove in 100 degrees. They're hungry. What's Jesus going to do? There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no In-N-Out. What, is he going to cut his sermon short and tell them to go? Go feed yourself? Actually, that's what the disciples suggested. In Mark chapter 6, it says, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus has a much better idea. He's got a much better plan. And his plan begins with a test. The test is for the disciples. Look there at verse 6. Jesus was testing Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Philip comes and just practically speaking, Jesus, we, we don't have that kind of money. And even if we did, we can't just order Costco pizzas. How, how are we going to feed all of these people? Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? You see, Andrew wasn't quite sure how he was going to solve the problem, but he finds the only little boy who's packing his lunch, and he says, this boy, he's got two little fish, five barley cakes. I'm not sure how far this is going to go, but this is what we got. This is what we're working with. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover pieces so that nothing will be lost. 
So they gather them up, fill the 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And here's where we ask the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Is he merely a miracle worker? You see, throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus performed miracle after miracle. In fact, scholars, they, they kind of debate what the range of miracles. Was it 37? Is it 45? Is it somewhere in between? The reality is we don't know the number. Because on several occasions throughout the Gospels, we read this. He performed many miracles. How many is many? It's many. We don't know. But each of those healings is a miracle in and of itself. So we don't know the exact number, but that's okay. John tells us that there's really eight miracles in John's gospel, but all of those miracles are intended to point to one truth, and it's this right here, that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. And even though John only records eight miracles, we have to keep in mind what he says at the end of his gospel. When you're familiar with this, John 20 and verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And he goes on to say, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So let me ask you again, is Jesus just a miracle worker, or is he something greater than that? Now, apparently, the crowds picked up on the fact that he is something greater. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Okay, so is he the prophet? This tipped them off to an Old Testament prophecy that goes all the way back to Moses, that one like Moses would come and he would perform similar miracles and he would teach the people. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. The only problem was they didn't like what this prophet had to say. They identified, is this the prophet? Well, if he is, why are you not listening to him? The interesting thing, that yes, Jesus is the prophet, but he's doing things that are beyond what the prophets were doing. He's speaking in his own authority. He's not waving a staff around. He's not depending on his brother Aaron to speak, but everything is coming from Jesus himself. Well, the crowds picked up on the power, but they still haven't made the connection that this is a prophet with a capital P. And so we'll give the crowds a thumb up. You've identified the prophet, but we'll give them two thumbs down because they do not want to listen to him. And so they fail the prophet test, but maybe they're going to get the king test right. Look there at verse 15. So Jesus knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So, is Jesus the king, the Messiah, the Mashiach? And this actually looks promising because they've identified him as the king and now they want to come and crown him. So why does the text say then that Jesus withdrew from them? I think the answer is pretty simple. 
They wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted the wrong kind of king. They wanted a king of their own liking. First of all, nobody makes Jesus king. Jesus already is king. They come and try to grab him and make him something. You see, a thousand years prior to this, they did the same thing. They wanted a human king, a king like unto the nations. Well, here Jesus is both human and divine, but they still don't want God ruling over them. Nothing's changed. The kind of king they were looking for had nothing to do with the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. He's not going to be a Messiah of their own making. You see, what they failed to see here was that their greatest need was not food. Their greatest need was not deliverance from a foe like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Rome. Their motives for wanting a king were still temporal. They were still nationalistic. They were still political. They wanted a military leader, a physical deliverer. But what they needed most was a king that would actually rescue them from their sins. They needed a righteous king who would rule the eternal kingdom and deliver them from the bondage of Satan. That is not the kind of king they wanted. And I'll just say this. There are a lot of folks that are jam-packed into churches And they are perfectly fine with Jesus the healer and Jesus the miracle worker. And I'll even accept Jesus as king, but under my terms. Oh, I I wanted Jesus to save me from my sins. But Jesus said, repent, and I didn't want that. Too many people treat the eternal king like he's an ATM machine. Give me, give me, give me. Too many people treat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords like Aladdin's genie. They want blessing. They do not want to submit to his authority and his rulership. No, Jesus is much more than a miracle worker. He's much more than a prophet. He's much more than an earthly mortal king. And John makes this explicit by including in this story a miracle among miracles. Look there in verse 16. It says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they began to cross to the Sea of Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea was stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and it says, they were frightened. Well, this is another level. And so the question we ask here is, is Jesus God? You see, the crowds were confused about his identity. They, they wanted to take him prematurely and provide a perverted coronation. They wanted to take him by force to make him king, but Jesus didn't want his disciples to get caught up in the hoopla. And so he, he sends them away to protect them. He tells them to get into the boat and cross over to the other part of the sea. He dismisses the crowd. He prays. And then he takes a casual stroll on the water. The prophets walk on the water. You say a miracle people walk on the water. Yeah, but there's something that they're walking on. 
Jesus is walking on the water. And John doesn't include all the details in the story. We know from Matthew's gospel that Peter walked on the water and he was doing fine until he took his eyes off Christ and then he sank. And then Mark's gospel tells us they're frantically rowing against the wind and all of a sudden, Jesus, intending to pass by them, just casually, walks right by on top of the water. The disciples are terrified. But what does Jesus say? Look there in verse 20. Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now the fascinating thing about this comment, the Greek construction, it's very clear what Jesus is saying. It's ego eimi. Ego means I am. That's where we get the word ego from. But eimi also means I am. You know what Jesus just said? I am, I am. As he casually strolls walking on the water. You see, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples with the identical description that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. Yod, hey, vav, hey, Yahweh, I am that I am. Jesus takes that very name to himself. He's not just a popular guy. He's not just some sort of miracle worker. He's not just someone that we're attracted to socially. You say, well, what's the point of the story that's sandwiched between the feeding of the 5,000 and the discourse on the bread of life? The point is, Jesus is God. And it's not until Jesus returns to the land that he makes his divinity clear to everybody, not just the disciples, and he does that by launching into the bread of life discourse. Seven times in this passage, there's something that Jesus says that's remarkable. And it's coming down. Look there at verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Look at verse 42. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Look at verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. If there's something that John and Jesus want to make abundantly clear, he's not from here. He came down from heaven it was Charles Spurgeon who said, Oh, to think that he who was master of all of heaven's majesty came down to be the victim of all of man's misery. He came down, listen, to give his life. He came down in order that we might have life. And not just have life, but as he says, to have it more abundantly. 
Jesus says, I am the spiritual bread. You're looking for food that will ultimately perish and spoil and expire, but I am the bread that has come down to heaven, from heaven to satisfy your deepest longing. He says here, even those that ate manna that God sent from heaven, they still died. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and what happened? They died. But if you partake of me, if you taste and see that I am good, you'll have eternal life. That's Jesus' promise. I am to your spirit what bread is to your physical body, and just as food sustains us and provides us with energy and vitality, Jesus is saying the same thing. I am essential to your spiritual life. Without Jesus, you have no life. And so if Jesus is a true miracle worker and a prophet and a king and if he really is the bread of life, God come down from heaven, the next question is, what do we do with him? If all these things are true about his nature, his character, his identity, his person, if this is the biggest reality in all the world, what do we do with him? One of the most fascinating details throughout the narrative is that it says that they are actually seeking Jesus. Look there at verse 24. It says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves, they got into small boats, they came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come from? Now, it's important that we see that they're up all night. It's an all-night vigil. They, they are waiting and watching for Jesus so that he might appear again. And when it was obvious that he wasn't coming back, they all called the boat Uber and said, I need a pickup here. I got to go find Jesus. And you imagine all these people jumping into boats and they're rowing looking for Jesus. And when they find him, they're perplexed. And they ask, how in the world did you get here? And Jesus totally ignores their question. Doesn't even bother with it. Look there at the text, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled you see, they're not looking for him because of the miracle. They were looking for him because they wanted another meal. One author said, they weren't moved by full hearts. They were moved by full bellies. And you say, well, why does Jesus call them out like this? Why, why is he kind of being rude? I mean, he's, he's confrontational. He's, he's calling them out. The text says that they're seeking him. They're, they're waiting all night for him. Isn't that what Jesus wants? Doesn't he want people to come to him? Doesn't he want to bring in more disciples? Well, if that's the case, why does he respond the way that he does? And the answer to that is because on the surface, it looks like they're seeking him. It looks like they want him. But the text tells us it's for all of the wrong reasons was because of their motive. Their motive was evil. They wanted him, listen, for his gifts. They didn't want the giver of the gifts. 
They wanted what he could give, but that's it. There are countless people who have drank the Kool-Aid and who go to big and popular churches and they hear pastors who are health, wealth, prosperity that talk about all the things that Jesus wants to do for you. He wants to make your life better, more richer, more vibrant. He wants to give, 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 give. And the thing that they forget to say is that Jesus wants relationship with you. And the greatest thing that he wants to give to you is himself. And that is the thing that will satisfy you the most. But people continue to bow down to these preachers thinking that life is all about them. But listen, if you're merely interested in the products and not in the person, you have the wrong Jesus. The Roman poet Juvenal wrote that Romans, they longed eagerly for just two things. They just wanted bread, food, and they wanted circuses, entertainment. And these Jews, that's characterization of them right there, just like our American culture. We want entertainment, we want to see the sensational, and we want free meals. And I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but when Jess and I, when we first got married, I discovered something called timeshare presentations. And the promise they made is that if you come to the timeshare presentation and you let us talk to you for two hours, you can have a free steak meal. And I said, babe, I've never heard of this. They're just giving away steak meals? I'm not gonna tell you how many of these I went to to have a free meal. But I went. I don't know if I'm ashamed. I'm a little ashamed about that. But listen to this. Back in 2018, there was a Domino's pizza in Russia. And this is what the Domino's pizza in Russia promoted. They said, if you go out and you get a Domino's logo tattoo and you come to one of our stores, we will provide pizza for you for the rest of your life. I actually shared this with my daughter and I think she was tempted to go get a tattoo of a Domino's pizza logo. But you know what ended up happening? They had to retract their promise. Do you know why? Let's see if we have this up here. I'm not sure if you got it. Because hundreds and hundreds of people showed up with Domino's tattoos. And they realized we cannot, we cannot provide pizza for all these people for all of their lives. Look at what that says. Prisoner of freebies. Listen, that's a little humorous. But that is how people treat Jesus. I want him for what he's going to give me. I want him for his gifts. Domino's Pizza could not fulfill the promise. If you come to Jesus and say, I want you, he never runs out. He's never going to retract his promise. He's never going to say, you have had too much of me. He is going to give you himself and satisfy your deepest longings. Look, if we're going to come to Christ, it has to be on the basis of one thing and one thing only, and it is, I want him. I want Jesus. We want all that he is and all that he provides. And so Jesus cautions them. Look at verse 27. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, 
Watch your motives, but also, he says, watch your works. You see, if you take the time to read the narrative carefully, you'll see that Jesus' followers, they were working extremely hard. There's no doubt about that. These are not lazy people. They traveled a long distance to Galilee to see Jesus. They're hiking up mountains. They're jumping into boats. They're rowing across the sea. They're sprinting across the land. There is no hint of disinterest. They're strategizing. They're prioritizing. They're showing up to every Jesus event. But the problem is they were seeking after that which does not last. Look at verse 27. This is why Jesus says, work for the food which endures to eternal life. And what is their response when he says that? More spiritual ignorance. Verse 28, therefore they said to him, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And in asking this question, they don't understand the spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching. They're asking him, what what must I do to inherit eternal life? What human endeavor? What hoop can I jump through? Do I have to pray more? Do I have to serve more? Do I have to read my Bible more? Do I have to be more consistent with my church attendance? How can I expend my energy to be acceptable in God's eyes? A rich young ruler came to Jesus and said the exact same thing. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what we find people say is, give me a to-do list. Give me a to-do list. What works do I have to check off in order to get to heaven? And practically, just translating the language for you, practically when we do that, we're trying to manipulate God to get what we want. I want heaven, but I don't want Jesus, and that is a contradiction. Because heaven is nothing without Jesus. Look there at verse 29. This is the gospel in one sentence. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to do the works of God, he puts it in the singular, there's only one. There's only one work of God. What is it? Believe him. Believe him. God is not looking for workers, he's looking for believers Let me ask the Christians in this room, are you saved by works, yes or no? Are you saved by works, yes or no? Let's go, Grace Church of the Valley. Are you saved by works, yes or no? You absolutely are saved by works. It's just not your own. And so when Jesus says believe, believe in me. Believe in what I've done. Believe in where I came from. Believe in what I have accomplished. Believe in my death. Believe in my resurrection. Believe in my power to raise you from the dead. Believe in me. You want to work the works of God? You want to be satisfied? How do I do that? You believe me. And look, there's a promise in verse 51. Jesus says this, I am the living bread, that came down out of heaven, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. 
And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this is where you say, this is a little strange, this, this, this talk about eating his flesh. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about obtaining eternal satisfaction based on the belief that his body would be offered up on the cross and that he would be resurrected to give sinners new life. You see, when we embrace his sacrificial death, Jesus says, I will give you my perfect righteousness. I will give you life eternal Look at John 6, 53. We read this there. So Jesus said to them, truly true to you, I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Again, he's not talking literally here. He's simply saying that we must come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Coming to him is so important. He repeats it over and over again in verse 35, in verse 37, in verse 44, in verse 45, in verse 65. And you say, well, what does it mean to come to him? It means that you believe him. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. John 6, 35, he who believes in me will never thirst John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You see, for Jesus, eating is believing. Drinking is believing, and he promises eternal life to all those who believe. And you say, Dom, believe what? Believe that you can't get to heaven on your own. Believe that you are a sinner. Believe that you have no hope of being forgiven. Believe that there is nothing that you can do to ever be made right in God's eyes. Believe that just because your mom and your dad are Christians, that doesn't make you qualified for heaven. Believe that Jesus loves you. Believe that he gave up his life and he hung on that cross. Believe that he could have called angels down and he could have fought, but instead he wept and he dropped big drops of blood because he loved you that much and that was the only way. Believe him when he prays, Father, your will be done. Believe Jesus Christ for salvation. You see, there are many people who say they believe, but they're doing nothing with that belief. They're sitting in churches thinking that they know that Jesus is the bread of life. I know this. I grew up with this. From the age of 12 to 20, I could tell you the gospel. I went to church. I had this down, and yet I didn't truly believe because believing is an action, and it applies two things. It implies, one, that you come all the way, not part way, not halfway, not one foot in and one foot out, but all the way. And it also means that you go far away from the world we're saying yes to Jesus, no to the world. 
Yes to fullness, no to emptiness. Yes to eternity, no to the temporal. Yes to the heavenly, no to the earthly. And when Jesus makes the claim that he's the bread of life, this is the first of the seven I am statements. What he's saying is I am the all-satisfying treasure. But listen and look. You can know that he's the bread of life, but never taste and see that he's good. You can know that he is the light of the world, but never let his spiritual truth enlighten your heart. You can know that he is the gate for the sheep, but refuse to enter in. You can know that he's the good shepherd, but reject his leading and his provision. You can celebrate Easter. You can rejoice in the resurrection, but you can still be dead in your sins. You can profess that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but you never follow his path. You can say he is the vine, but never abide and rely on him for spiritual life. So listen, if you're here this evening, Jesus doesn't want that to be you. He doesn't want you to have the head knowledge. He wants you to submit your hearts, embrace him, believe him. He's pleading with you, come to me. Let me satisfy you. Don't be like the hard-hearted crowd. They didn't want to believe. Instead, what do they want? They wanted more signs. Look at what they say in verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Because our fathers, they ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Do you want a sign from heaven? Here I am. If that's what you're asking for, here I am. I am the son that came down from heaven. See, the problem wasn't that they wanted another miracle or really needed another sign. The problem is that signs, even if you get them, they're not going to satisfy you. Jesus said in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so you may become sons of light. So listen, who's this Jesus? He's more than a miracle worker. He's the prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's the Messiah King. He's the man that came down from heaven. He is the bread of life. He is God. How do we come to him? It's really simple. Through faith, the work of God that brings about eternal life is just belief. And now let's end with our last question, which is, so what? So what? Why turn to Jesus and embrace him by faith? Question three, why should we come to him? Listen, because he is the only one who will satisfy your soul's deepest longing. Coming to Jesus guarantees three things, salvation, which we've talked about, but satisfaction and security. And I just want to touch on those real quickly. It was Augustine who said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Every human being, every soul, every heart desires to be satisfied. All of us do, without exception. And the Lord created you and hardwired you for that very thing. All of us have this inner craving, a craving that can never be satisfied by temporal things. 
For those of you that remember what life was like before Christ, you remember those days chasing after pleasure, chasing after pleasure in people and in places. It starts when you're young. You just have great satisfaction with your toys and your stuff and getting good grades and badges and ribbons and awards and being made much of and then you get older and it's all about your independence and you want a boyfriend and a girlfriend and maybe get a job and get some money and spend money on some things and then you get into adult life and you think the thing that's gonna satisfy me is when I get married and start having sex and maybe have a kid and not just one kid but two kids and maybe a big family and a house and now I need a bigger house and I need a vacation house and you get older on in life and you say the thing that's gonna satisfy me is if I can retire and enjoy my grandkids. And we think that the world is going to satisfy, but it never does. And Jesus is telling you right now, stop putting all of your chips in the basket of the world. We waste so much valuable time chasing after the wind, striving for more, thirsting after things that do not quench, but the world has lied to us. Psalm 107 says this, for he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Psalm 1611, you will make me know the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Those of you that know Christ, you know true peace true and lasting joy. You have hope, you have harmony, you have happiness because you are in him. We have a good God who loves us, who knows us, who cares for us. And I think the Lord sent me here tonight to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe he cares for you? Because in the midst of all these miracles and all these great things that he's revealing about himself, there's one thing that we need to pay attention to He cares for your physical needs. The Lord feeds his children, Matthew 6, 26. He looks after the birds of the air. He's going to look after you. And did you notice in this account that the Lord, he just doesn't feed everybody. He feeds them with great abundance. Eat, eat, keep eating. He wasn't slapping food out of people's hands. He wanted them to enjoy. The text says they were filled and they kept eating. And once they had their full, not only that, but there were 12 baskets left over. He will meet whatever need you have to glorify himself and to satisfy you. You know, all four gospel writers They talk about the miracle that Jesus performs, the feeding, but only Mark tells us why he actually did it. Mark 6.34 says this, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and it says that he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So just rewind. Rewind real quickly with me and think about the food in Galilee and then God's provision in the wilderness, but go all the way back to the garden When God said, here you go, have as much as you like. I've created it. I want you to enjoy it. But what happens? Satan distorts. He distracts. And Adam and Eve, they disbelieve. They disbelieve that God is for them, that God is good, and that he provides good things. 
And so they hunger and thirst for their own way and they disregard God's word and they disobey and they take the fruit and they think they can figure out how to make themselves happiest in life. And they plummet the world into sin and we still have the same problem. So you see, here's the problem. When we try to feed ourselves and make ourselves happy, it never happens. But now, fast forward from the tree to the wilderness to the miraculous multiplying of the bread and fish, all of that pointed to God's covenant faithfulness that I will provide what truly satisfies. And it's not a meal, it's not fruit, but it's my son. He saves us, he sanctifies us, but he also secures us. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me They'll come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on the last day. Jesus says over and over again, and he used the strongest language, I will never, ever lose them. You will never be hungry. You will never thirst. You will never be cast out. All that to say is if you come to Christ, not only will you be satisfied, not only will you have salvation, but you are secure. You will die. I've been to funerals here. I've done funerals You've been to funerals. You do not know how long you have. You will die. But God's promise to you is, if you believe, if you come to the bread of life, if you're satisfied by the only one that can truly satisfy you, his promise to you is, I will raise you up on the last day. You know, the interesting thing about John 11, and you'll hear about this, Jesus in John 11, Martha, that exchange, she says to him, after Lazarus dies, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But what she doesn't say is I know that you will raise him up. And Jesus said to her, "Uh -uh. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? Let me just close with a hymn. And maybe this is true of your own heart as you think about the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, and all of these other I am statements, and how Christ is truly the only one that can satisfy you. All my life long I have panted. This is what it reads. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hope would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his life I now am saved. Feeding on the husk around me Till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better. 
only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, ever springing, bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. I love that. And listen, if you are here this evening, that is because God wants you to hear. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. He is the bread of life. He has never, ever disappointed. If you turn to him in faith and repentance, he promises to save you and raise you up on the last day. Let's pray.